Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you for that reading, Dr. Longbonds and Mr. Ritchie, Mr. Buffington. For everyone here in the sanctuary today, I know these are strange times, and even for everyone at home, but please know this, that we are so profoundly glad that you're here. You are always welcome to be a part of Peachtree, to walk and journey with us as we continue to ask, how can we be faithful at such a time as this? Will you please join with me in prayer? Father, you hold us all in your wonderful and deep love. And in this season of life, that is always full and busy, where we know noise and where life can get loud and fast. Quiet our hearts, calm our minds, that for now, in this place, that we might be able to see who you are with clarity. May these words and the meditations of all our hearts bring honor and glory to you. It's in Christ that we pray in thanksgiving always. Amen. Because it's more than a simple line. It's more than a request for an audience. At least in hindsight, they give voice to the plea that's been guiding the whole plot. Both then and now, they say what we all want to say. In one way or another, they want what we all want. As the gospel writers relay the story, sometimes it takes climbing a tree other times it takes digging a hole in the roof and entering from above. Often it means getting caught up in the chaos of a crowd, leaving something or someone behind, whether it's food and family or decency and decorum. Whatever it takes, the motive, the desire is the same. We want to see Jesus. In John chapter 12, this is what some Greeks first say to Philip. Our text tells us that Philip and Andrew eventually pass this message on to Jesus. And then Jesus tells them 
that they will see Jesus if they follow him. Jesus says that seeing him requires going where he goes, sacrificing and channeling the fullness of your life toward service to others. This is the message Philip and Andrew will now have to carry back and deliver. This is the Jesus that we have come to know and expect in all of the gospel narratives. The line I frequently come back to in preaching and teaching from the gospels is this. We see who Jesus is by watching what he does. In other words, the identity of Christ is understood by how he lowers himself in compassionate love for others. In a genuine way, the Gospels depict a Jesus who models a particular way of life. Jesus is self-giving. He does not rule by bullying or thrashing others. He does not use power or influence for personal gain and self-satisfaction. As we read in Philippians chapter 2, Christ willingly lowers and empties himself because this is God's way. In Jesus, God becomes human. Just a chapter earlier in John's gospel, we read of the very human Jesus who weeps. And it is later in chapter 19 of John's gospel that we will read of a Jesus who suffers, thirsts, and bleeds. The remarkably human and divine Christ is recorded on every page of the gospels. In today's passage, Jesus responds to Philip and Andrew by speaking lines that foreshadow all that is about to unfold. Jesus tells Philip and Andrew that if these Greeks want to truly see him, they'll have to follow in his footsteps. By doing this, they'll see who Jesus is because they'll be watching, perceiving, and experiencing how the self-giving love of Christ truly transforms everything. Now again, all of this seems par for the course of the Gospels. But I've been increasingly convinced that there is a potentially curious and often neglected development at work in this scene. I think it might be the case that there's another layer that we sometimes miss in this encounter. It goes something like this. If you follow the sequence of events, or if you were to make a film about this scene... What you'd have and what you'd find is a group of Greek-speaking people telling Philip that they want to see Jesus. Philip then goes and consults with Andrew, and then this message is carried by Philip and Andrew to Jesus. And then Jesus speaks his reply directly to Philip and Andrew. Now, why is all of this significant? It's frequently pointed out that Andrew and Philip are both Greek names. Philip is a name that often appears in the Greco-Roman world, and in the New Testament at least four different people are known by this name. Andrew is also a name that was derived from and attested to in the Hellenistic or Greek world. What we have in this passage are Greek speakers who first speak to a Greek name. Philip. 
he in turn consults with another Greek name, Andrew. And these two, Philip and Andrew, then pass the message on to Jesus. Now, what comes next is partially speculative, but I believe with good reason. You might recall that Jesus' name is thoroughly Hebrew. And so we have Greek-speaking visitors coming to Jerusalem, seeking out Greek-named disciples who then carry their request to Jesus. Now let's add another layer. We are told in this very text that Philip is from Bethsaida in Galilee. And we know that this is also where Andrew is from. According to New Testament scholar Clayton Croy, Bethsaida was known as a town where Greek language and culture had made significant inroads. Bethsaida was a fishing town. In fact, the name of the town itself means house of fishing. Ancient historians like Josephus, as well as modern historians, have evaluated the ethnic and cultural makeup of the city and its apparent ties to Rome. Additionally, the archaeological evidence suggests that Bethsaida was under Hellenistic or Greek influence. Now, all of this has been used to build a case that the Greek language would have been known and widely spoken in the city of Bethsaida around the period of Jesus' lifetime. Now, with these details in view, a strong case can be made that both Andrew and Philip could have been bilingual, speaking both Greek and Aramaic. Alternatively, when you evaluate Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, we discover a strongly Jewish settlement that was not directly connected to roads that led to larger cities and towns in Galilee. During the lifetime of Jesus, Nazareth was generally known to have been an agricultural village without the presence of Greek education and language. Clayton Croy here summarizes by saying, quote, that Jesus, a Jew with a Hebrew name and a solid cultural and religious grounding in Judaism, hailing from a small Jewish village somewhat off the beaten path, would have spoken Aramaic and probably Hebrew. He may have had a simple Greek vocabulary and perhaps a modest receptive knowledge of Greek, but an in-depth conversation on religious matters with a Greek-speaking audience would have likely exceeded his linguistic capability. Some of Jesus' disciples probably had greater bilingual faculty, in particular, Philip and Andrew, disciples with pure Greek names, hailing from a larger, more cosmopolitan town that was well-connected with regional trade routes. Croy then concludes by saying that in John 12, 20 through 22, the presence of Philip and Andrew is explicit, and their function, I believe, is implicit. It is possible then to infer in this case, and perhaps in others, that they translated for Jesus, end quote. Now let me press pause there for just a moment to say that for me, the prospect of Jesus not being fluent in Greek is not something that I find to be troubling in the slightest. Instead, I think it actually confirms the orthodox belief in a Christ who was both fully divine and fully human. 
Having said that, there's room, always room, for a historical caveat that observes that Jesus may not have been like the normative person of his time and social location. In other words, I'll admit that just because most people from Nazareth during this time wouldn't have known Greek, we can neither confirm nor deny Jesus' Greek fluency with absolute certainty. In the end, all that we can do is read the text closely. But even if you don't buy the argument that Philip and Andrew translating for Jesus as is a matter of necessity, it remains the case that Greek speakers seek out, talk with Jesus' Greek-named disciples, and these two disciples then pass that message on to Jesus. Now, admittedly, some of you might right now be thinking, where is he going with this and why does it matter? Here's the point. In our passage for today, Jesus' disciples are depicted as listening to the words of Gentiles, those who up until this point in John's gospel were seemingly on the fringe of the narrative. Philip and Andrew listen to these Greeks and they realize it's going to be up to them to show them who Jesus is. At one level, Philip and Andrew seem to be translating. They're reading the world around them, listening to Jesus, and then turning back around to tell these Gentiles how they'll come to know Jesus in a way that they'll actually hear and understand. Philip and Andrew have to translate the message and relevance of Christ to a new and different audience. They're left to say to those previously on the outskirts of the plot line that you'll know who Jesus is by following in his footsteps of self-sacrificing love for the sake of others. Now, my great fear is that sometimes we in the church have lost this same art of translation. Sometimes our words of faith just don't make any sense. Just as tragically, sometimes our lives of faith don't translate into meaningful examples of lived faithfulness. It's more than regrettable when those on the outside of the church sometimes come close, curious to learn about why the life of Christ matters here and now, only to find a word or example that doesn't compute or resonate. There is never a good reason for the church's words and actions to be dated or dilapidated. It is always lamentable when translations fall flat or when they confuse more than they clarify. Today's passage reminds me that one of the primary tasks of those following Christ, both then and now, is to learn how to give voice to the message of God's goodness at work in the world today. Here in John's gospel is a siren call for us to be skillful translators, artists, musicians, poets, and storytellers who get the words, images, and actions in a truthful and compelling frame. One of the fundamental truths of translation 
is that the work is never finished. There will always be new translations of sacred and non-sacred texts because the task of communicating with words that people can understand in their own time and place is ongoing. The church must always take up the mantle of, of putting a message of hope and compassion and healing out into our neighborhoods, communities, and throughout the broader world. The church must always be creative and imaginative and communicating the unchanging content of God's story in a constantly changing context. I once saw this simply illustrated by someone who had several very different looking water pitchers lined up in front of him. He started with one pitcher that was clear glass and filled with water. He then poured the entirety of the water from one pitcher to the next. And going down the line, there was a green glass one that looked like it was from the 70s. There was a sterling silver one and, and multiple plastic ones. And as he poured the contents of the pitcher out again and again, it was overwhelmingly clear that the content remained the same. However, the container changed over time again and again and again. And here's the point. Every church that survives and flourishes from one generation to the next will be marked by change. Our world is never static. Language, cultures, and traditions ebb and flow. It's always been this way, and it always will be. Every era will have new challenges, styles, preferences, and unique variables. The containers and trappings will inevitably change. But crucially, the content, what's at the heart, this remains the same. This is where the art and act of translation is always needed. We take the same message, the same hope-inspiring content, and do our very best to communicate in a way that is both faithful and relevant. Again, this means it will always be incumbent for a thriving church to be deeply imaginative, creative and compelling in how we speak and enact our deeply rooted faith in an ever-changing world. Notably, both in John's text and in our contemporary context, this isn't purely about words. Jesus tells his disciples that following his self-sacrificing example will be a message that actually translates. Perhaps we could here say that actions speak louder than words, or that loving actions poured out into the world will always be powerfully resonant. Then and now, we come to know Jesus and his disciples by watching what they do. Jesus embodies the message of divine love, compassion, mercy, and redemption. Jesus puts words into lived expression and actual motion. Jesus practices what he preaches, and he invites others to follow so that they can see for themselves that he is not simply spouting words, but living them out. 
Jesus is himself a redeeming message to live by. Jesus demonstrates what philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein theorized, that it is our praxis or what we do that gives meaning to our words. In the end, we're left with the practical challenge of addressing how we're living and translating the message of Christ to the world in a way that might actually get a hearing. People are still wanting, waiting, and and watching to see the life of Christ make a difference. For some of you, this past year has been so disorienting that you find yourself wanting to see Jesus more vividly. But the more profound truth of today's text is that Jesus is waiting for his disciples to start following his example. This is always the place where we are to start, pick up again, and continue. We modern-day disciples are called to put Christ's words in our mouths and to flesh out these same words in our everyday attitudes and actions. Having encountered Jesus, I wonder, what words are you saying today? What example are you living out right now? How are you sacrificing in this season? How will your compassion and for and forgiveness of others be evident in what you're saying and doing this very week? How are you currently embodying the self-giving love of Christ in this specific moment of global disarray? I think it's safe to say that we all have some work left to do. After all, the work of translation is never done.